0: Or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind. And I hope you'll stick around. At the end of last week's talk, I left you with an image. This one right here of a mule. It wasn't arbitrary. Our text last week was Psalm 32. The word of instruction given there, particularly in verses 8 and 9, said, Do not be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. A mule is a genetic wonder. It is the product of breeding a horse with a donkey, and it is an exceptional athlete. Strong, sure-footed, and just a little too smart for its own good. His intelligence makes him smart enough to want to go his own way and to resist the way his handler wishes him to go. But a horse, as the text says, can be stubborn too. And this is where a mule's strength can actually come into play. In the days of the Wild West, the most important tool in a cowboy or a rancher's toolbox was the horse. And often they brought their horses out west with them from back east but many times they captured and tamed horses on the Great Plains. Horses are not indigenous to the Great Plains. These horses were the mustangs turned loose by the Spanish conquistadors generations earlier. They were fast, they were strong, they were survivalist, exactly what a rancher or a cowboy wanted, but they were impossibly wild. The American rodeo that is so popular now began with Spanish-Mexican Practicality, they were trying to break wild horses to make them of use on the ranch and on the farm. But some ranchers, looking for a more natural, less violent way of taming their horses, wouldn't abuse the animal. They would just tie a Mustang to a mule. John Killinger says, bucking, and raging, convulsing like drunken sailors. The pair would be turned loose like Laurel and Hardy to proceed out into the desert range. This wild stallion and this stubborn mule. The two might be gone for days. But eventually they would come back. Because the mule would be seen first, trotting back across the horizon. For he knew the way home, leading his submissive submissive steed in tow. End of quote. Somewhere out there in the desert, the horse... Had met his match against a stubborn mule, and now the horse, exhausted, comes home, used up, not wanting so much to be tame, is just wanting some relief away from the mule. And an animal that beforehand would not allow a human being to touch it could suddenly have a saddle put on it and a bridle put on it and made ready to ride, and the cowboy never lifts a hand it just lets a stubborn mule do what a stubborn mule will do this is sort of a hillbilly rule for survival being a hillbilly myself lesson one in survival in the world are you ready write it down don't ever fight something bigger meaner or more stubborn than you are did you get that don't ever fight something bigger meaner or more stubborn than you are You will spend all of your energy. You will use all of your best moves. And whatever it is that you are up against will only get stronger. Because whatever you're up against will not deplete itself at the rate you are depleting yourself. Basic hillbilly rule. So wise up. Is really what the psalm was about and what the proverb is about today. Life is bigger than you. Life is meaner than you. Life is more stubborn than you. And when you are exhausted, lo and behold, when you are dead and gone and buried in your grave, life will go on without you. And sure, sometimes we can impose our will on our little world around us. But just take a look at the newest pictures from NASA this week if you want to see what small amoeba you are in this great pond of life called the universe. We can be stubborn, we can be strong, we can be mean, but you're not going to outlast life itself. You have to learn to live differently. Learn to live more agreeable, more compliant, more trusting. Quoting Rumi from last week, and I think I have this slide again this week. Whoever travels without a guide needs 200 years for a two-day journey. You don't have 200 years. You don't have time to make all the mistakes that can be made out there. All the course corrections that must be had. All the U-turns that are going to be necessary. You need someone who knows the way. You need someone who can help you adjust you need someone to steady you when you are shaky. You need help. You need a guide. Don't be mule-headed. I almost say, don't be a horse's... Yeah. In your stubborn, headstrong way, be sure to get out of the way, out of your own way, and let God lead you as you live your life. And that brings us to our text today, Companion verses to Psalm 31, Proverbs 3, Anna, as usual, introduced them, introduced them perfectly. We move from the wise King David, author of that psalm, to the wiser still son, King Solomon, who is the attributed author of most of these Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 1-6 through 6, is that kind of standard sage advice that a father gives his son that the son doesn't listen to. Told my son, who's nineteen, recently, I don't like you. What, Dad? I'm like, I, I don't like you. I don't. I, in fact, I've never met a nineteen-year-old boy that I do like, including your brothers, including myself. But one day we might be friends again. This proverb starts with sort of the dad saying, "Now you listen here, son. I'm trying to keep you out of trouble, right, Dad?s Listen to me." Don't make the mistakes I've made. Don't step into the potholes I've stepped into. Listen to me. Wise up. Be mindful of others. Be mindful of God. Be kind. Be true. And then the punchline. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all that you do and He will show you which path to take. Some translators pitch that last line a little bit differently. They say, He will direct your paths, speaking of God. And others say, He will make your path straight. The point is that God will give us wisdom and vision for our choices, for our decisions. God will make the way clear. And I think that's what we want. I have never met a soul, not one, who has ever said to me, you know, I really like this part about being confused. Indecision is my jam. Ain't it just the best thing when you don't know what to do? I've never met anybody like that. Because we abhor confusion. We don't like uncertainty. We want to know. It's just a human thing. So you would think, if we had the means of avoiding said confusion, that we would take it. He will show you which path to take. He will direct your paths. He will make your path straight. No, it's not a mathematical formula. Anna was exactly right. It's not a vending machine where you say, okay, God, here's my prayer, clinkety-clink-clink into the machine, and I wait for that little treat to pop out that I want. It doesn't work like that. And if someone tells you it works like that, they're selling you something. It just doesn't work like that. But there is some assurance here that God can and will actively meet us where we live and at least throw up a few road signs along the way. That's the outcome we are looking for. What is left is accessing this outcome. We move from what to the how. And the how is always the trick, isn't it? We do that by following the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of David from last week. Don't be stubborn, trust. And there's really a three-fold instruction here from Solomon in the text today. Trust the Lord, don't depend on yourself. And seek God's will. It comes down to two words surrender and seek. Surrender your will, surrender your agenda, and seek out God's. One act of negation, one act of confirmation. You let go, you subtract your will and your wisdom. From the equation, you reach out, you move toward, you add God's will and God's wisdom to the equation. Surrender and seek. I take away what is not working and I add what will work. I stop focusing on myself and I focus on God. Quick example. Have you, have you ever been watching television, let's say it's a football game? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. About 50 days before college football. Maybe it's a mystery movie. Maybe it's a tense drama. Maybe you've waited all this time to start watching Stranger Things on Netflix. I don't know. But you're really watching it. And you're really intense. I mean, you're giving it all your focus and all your attention. Have you ever noticed, notice this about yourself, that when you are doing that, you are absolutely oblivious to anything else that is going on in the room or the world? that matter right if your partner your spouse is watching something they've been waiting to watch they're just dying to watch and they're all glued to it and tuned into it that's probably not the time to bring up cleaning out the gutters before winter i don't know because they're not going to hear a word that you say am i right Have you ever heard of this book, The Invisible Gorilla? Oh, it's about 25 years old now, written by two behavioral psychologists whose social experiment was by the same name, an experiment in what is, quote, is called, quote, perceptual blindness. Now, that's a technical way of describing what is unseen by a person, which should be obvious, which should be and is in plain sight. And they don't see it because they are so intensely focused on something else. In the experiment that I love, subjects are told to watch a short video. And there are two teams. One team is dressed in black. One team is dressed in white. And they are told, they have a basketball, and they are told, keep track of two things. Count the number of of bounce passes that your team makes. Count the number of aerial passes that your team makes. And at the end, there'll be a test. So the video comes on. They're watching this. They're counting, 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 counting. And in the original experiment, a woman with a raised umbrella walks right through the middle of the court while these teams are throwing the ball around. In another example, a person dressed as a bear moonwalks across the background. And then the most obvious of all, a seven foot tall masked gorilla walks through the middle of the room while they are counting their passes. Consistently, when this experiment is run time and time again, no group ever breaks 50% when they are asked Did you notice anything unusual while you were counting those passes? And in most cases, in most cases, they don't even break 20%. That means 80% of the people never see the gorilla in the room. Why? Because they're not looking for it. They are so intensely focused on their little assignment, their little piece of the world, That they don't see what is more than obvious. Is it any wonder then. That people can't hear God. Or see God. At work in their lives. Heaven itself could invade your life. As intrusive and as surprising as a gorilla walking into a room. And you would never know it. Because you are looking Somewhere else. We say something like, I just wish God would show me the way. I just wish God would make it plain. And God could be screaming God's lungs out. And you wouldn't hear it. Because you're not looking or listening in the right direction. There's a short story written by Max Licato that illustrates this perfectly. He says, once there was a man who dared God to speak. Burn the bush like you did for Moses, God, and I will follow. Collapse the walls like you did for Joshua, God, and I will fight. Steal the waves like you did on Galilee, God, and I will listen. And so the man sat by a bush near a wall close to the sea and waited for God to speak. God heard the man, so God answered. God sent fire, not for a bush, but for living. God brought down a wall, not of brick, but of sin. God stilled the storm, not of the sea, but of the soul. And God waited for the man to respond. And God waited, and God waited, and God waited. But because the man was looking at bushes, not hearts, bricks, not lives, seas, and not souls, he decided that God had done nothing. Finally, he looked to God and asked, have you lost your power? And God finally spoke and said, have you lost your hearing? It's very similar to the tale about the man stranded on the roof during the flood. It's classic. You know it, right? A man's on his roof. Flood comes. A guy on a boat comes by and the guy in the boat says, uh, take this rope. I can save you. And the guy says, oh, no, I'm praying to God. I've got faith that God's going to save me. Boat leaves. Water's getting higher. A few minutes later, a motorboat comes by. A guy in the boat throws him a line and says, Take this line. I can save you. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm praying to God, trusting God. God's going to save me. Water's getting higher. Finally, a helicopter comes over. Throws him a line. Hey, man, take this line. We can save you. I don't need it. I'm trusting God. I got faith in God. The man drowns. Goes to heaven. Gets to God. And he says, God, you abandoned me. I was down there trusting you, praying to you. Why did you let this happen? And God says, well, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What more did you expect? Right? Classic, old story, but true nonetheless. We will seek God's direction. We will ask God to show us the way, and that is good. Seeking is half the battle, battle. but what about that other half? Are we willing to surrender? Are we willing to surrender the direction that we think life should be going, whether we're 50-year-olds or earnest teenagers, Anna, when we read these verses? Are we willing to let go of the way we want to go? Can we pull our gaze off what we are so obsessed with and look in a Godward direction? God comes bouncing into the room and here we are with our heads down, navel-gazing, obsessed with what we want. We are not seeking God's direction and presence as much as we are wishing for God to bless the agenda we have already adapted and adopted for our own lives. And you can just watch in how we pray. Oh Lord, please, I need you to... I, you need God to do something. And it usually is, I need you, God, to do for me what I can't do because I've got this plan and it's not working out very well. Can we surrender that and say, not my will, O Lord, but your will be done? This is the hard part. And it always will be the work that we do. Meister Eckhart said so often, surrender, that is letting go of self-centeredness. That is the only spiritual discipline that there is. The only one. Because that's what gets in our way. I am so thankful for the wisdom and the disciplines of psychology and counseling and medical intervention when necessary, therapy when it comes to our spiritual growth. We are complete beings after all. Our emotions, our spirits, our bodies, they're all linked and tied together. And I thank God regularly for people like Anna Balfour, Lyle Sanquist, Josh Hotstetler, all of them here in our community who are counselors and they coach and they lead others to wellness. Sorry, Anna, I don't mean people to show up. Oh, Anna, you're taking new clients. Don't bombard her today. But I I do recommend these people regularly, these three and others, all the time. They have my full and total confidence. I would put my own well-being in their hands. I would put the well-being of those I love the most in their hands. That is no exaggeration. They help people become healthier people. What I have little confidence in, and I'm so glad Anna mentioned it and she could preach this sermon better than me, is what has accompanied all this wisdom, and that is our obsession with self-help. Books, seminars, podcasts, self-help is the largest single category, the most lucrative genre in America today. At least we know we're screwed up and need some help. That's a beginning. And there are tons of publications within the self help category that are amazingly rich and life giving, but the overwhelming majority are no help whatsoever to yourself or to your soul. They don't set you free to live a life of seeking and surrender, they keep you focused, obsessively so, on yourself, on what you want. On how you can impose your will on the world. On how you can reach your goals. Self-growth, self-awareness, self-care. Yes, yes, yes. Self-centeredness, self-obsession, self-fixation. No, no, no. The life of freedom is surrender. It is letting go. The obstacle to your path ahead is not circumstance, it is not fear, it is not confusion, it is attachment, it is ego, it is your hanging on. It's that idealistic, non-negotiable image you have in your mind of how things ought to go for you and how your life should be. And only when you can surrender these and allow a kind of vacuum of the soul and spirit to be created there can a true seeking of God and God's will God's peace be had.